Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to primarily look at verses 26 through 31, but our reading is actually going to begin in verse 17 and go through chapter 2, verse 5. And you can find this on page 952 in your pew Bible. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 5. But before we get there, there's a couple of things I want to point out. I want us to, to just to take a moment to go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and to look at a couple of things here leading up to our passage. A couple of points that we should have in mind as we look at our primary reading this morning. Chapter 1, verse 1, reads, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Paul begins by following the style of first century letters by introducing himself and describing himself as one called or one chosen by the will of God and appointed as an apostle. It's clear in Acts 9 that Paul was not one who sought to be an apostle, but, but rather God chose him. God appointed him. In Acts 9.15, God states that this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. It's important for us to know and understand this as we look at our passage this morning, that Paul recognizes he was chosen, he was called by the will of God. Now, just as a side note, there's also the mention of Sosthenes here, who may have been, you know, Paul's secretary. There's thought that he may have been the one who wrote the letter as Paul dictated it. And it's thought that Sosthenes was a Jewish synagogue leader in Corinth who was beaten during an assault on Paul for, for sharing the gospel. Sosthenes would then later receive Christ, and, and so he's well known by the believers in Corinth. And so Paul included his familiar name in the opening of this letter. In verses 2 and 3, we then read who this letter is written to, which is also important for us to, to look at as we consider our passage this morning. Verses 2 through 3. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. So Paul was writing this letter to the believers in Corinth. Corinth, a very worldly city, a giant cultural melting pot with, diverse, with a great diversity of wealth and religions and moral standards. It was a prosperous city which made it ripe for all kinds of corruption and idolatry and gross immorality. The immorality in the city was even was was in the city made even the most worldly men in, in other cities uncomfortable. I had read that others would, when they would think about a sinner in Corinth, all they had to say was, well, he or she was a Corinthian. Yet out of this moral wasteland, God formed a church, and he used Paul as his instrument. And like Paul, the believers in the church were, were called. They were chosen by God. In verse 2, called to be holy called to be saints, and not just the Corinthian believers, but believers everywhere, or believers in every place. 
So this letter is not just for Corinthian believers. It is, it is for all believers, believers in every place, and that would include us today. Now in verses 4 through, through 9, we have these words of thanksgiving that Paul gives, and he makes, again, a great point about being called. Verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Why is Paul thankful? Is he thankful that because of how great they are? No, he's thankful because of the grace given to them. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await or eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He's thankful to the Lord for his grace shown to them. He's thankful to the Lord that he has provided for them knowledge, that he has provided for them the gifting that they have received, and the speaking that they have. He's thanking the Lord for them. He's boasting in the Lord because of what the Lord has done in them, in his church. And he makes this great promise that he's going to preserve them. Verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. Why will God preserve his people? Why is he thankful to the Lord for them? How do we know? Because God has called you. Because God has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He is faithful. Now, verses 10 through 16, I'm not going to read, but he talks a bit about um, being perfectly un being united in mind and thought to agree with one another. He, he's, he goes more into detail in chapter 3 about divisions within the church body. We're not going to take a look at that this morning, but it's important for us to know as we look at our passage today that we have Paul, who was called, Corinthian believers who are called, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of Jesus Christ who are called, he will preserve us. Why? Because he's called you. Because he is faithful. So now we come to our, chapter, our, our primary passage this morning, starting in verse 17. And for this morning, would you stand with me, and let's just take a moment to pray before we read verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 5. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is a blessing a blessing to us to be able to look into your word, to read your word, to study your word, and to listen to your spirit. We pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning. Lord, you called us. As believers in Christ, we are called, and you will preserve us. Why? Because you called us, because you are faithful to us. So preserve us this morning, Lord. Help us to not only be listeners of your word, but to be doers of your word. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Verse 17. Remain, remain standing with me. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You may be seated. In verse 26, Paul again refers to the believers in Corinth as called out ones. Verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Here he asks them to think about something. Think about what you were when you were called. Take a moment and look back on your life, which really wasn't that long ago. What were you like when you were called? What kind of a person were you when you received Christ? How were you known by those around you? If I were to ask you that today, how would you answer? If I were to ask you that today, to think about what you were like when you were called, what would come to mind? I would imagine for a number of you, that would be hard to answer. I would imagine that there are those of you who grew up in a home that sought to honor God, and his word was central in your home. I would guess that there are many of you who have received Christ at a young age, 
So it's hard to picture life before Christ because it seems that Jesus was always there. Your parents were praying for you before you were even born. You were taught about the Lord at a very young age, and you just received Christ when you were young. Maybe it became more real for you as you grew, but Christ has always been a part of your life. So it's hard for you to, to imagine, what was it like when I was called? Well, if that is your testimony, then praise be to God for his mercy shown you. I would also imagine in this room that there are those of us who may or may not have grown up in a home that honored God and his word was central. And it was not later until life that you received Christ. So you do have a memory of life before you were called. Maybe you received Christ, like myself, as an older teen or as a young adult or maybe much later in life. If that is your testimony, then praise be to God for his mercy shown you. In either case, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For those of you who receive Christ at an early age, let me ask you this then. What if you were never called? What if you rebelled in your home and within your church? What do you think your life would look like today? Where would you be? Probably not sitting in a pew anywhere, right? What would your life look like? How do you think the world would, have, would think of you? For those of us who do have a memory of life apart from Christ, what was it like? What were you like when you were called? How did others treat you? When Paul asked this of the Corinthians in verse 26, he knew the answers, for he knew them. Paul spent 18 months with them during this, his second missionary journey. And as Paul thinks about what they were like when they were called, he, he goes on to remind them in verse 26. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Paul points out that not many of them had any worldly achievements. They were not seen as valuable in their own culture. And Paul points out three major areas that the Corinthian culture viewed as important. One, not many of you were wise by human standards. This comes from the Greek sophoi, which is a word used for intellectuals or philosophers. Not many were influential or powerful. This is a word, the Greek word dunitoi, which refers to politicians or decision makers in government. Not many were of noble birth, eugenius. This refers to aristocracy or having a noble lineage. All th three were of great importance in the Corinthian culture. All three were highly regarded. And what does Paul say? He says that not many of you were any of these things. Imagine if I did that with us today. What is important in our culture today? And I tried to think of a list of some things that, that we would say is important today. And there's a, there's a good list, but let me just share three that came to mind. I thought of looks, appearance today. Our looks are important, how we dress, that we're in shape, that we look good. As I think about all the commercials on TV about clothing and about meals delivered to your home to get in shape and athletic equipment and 
the right medication to make you feel better and look better. I keep thinking of that insulin commercial with the guys dancing. Do you know the insulin commercial? Um, I'm on that same insulin, and I, I can't dance anything like that. Um, but how we look, how we present ourselves, how we appear, it's so important. Another might be education, our training, how knowledgeable we are. Are we smart? What degree do you have? Where did you go to school? Another might be our social life. Are we socially accepted or socially awkward? How Are you popular? Do people like you? How many Facebook friends do you have? How many followers do you have on Twitter? How is your social life? Imagine if I began with that question today as I looked around this room. Do you remember what you were like not very long ago? And I looked around and said, yeah, not very many of you were very good-looking. Not very many of you were very smart either. And not many of you were very popular. As a matter of fact, most of you were pretty awkward socially. Wouldn't that be a little odd? Is there something wrong with Paul here? Is he troubled? Does he need to take a class on how to encourage people? I mean, he seems pretty discouraging here, isn't he? Doesn't he? Or, or is he? Or is he? Verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But, but, God chose the foolish things of this world, that's you, church, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world, Corinthians, to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why would he do this? Why would God choose this? So that no one may boast before him or so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. The foolish, weak, can never say that God chose me because of my lineage, my intellect, my wisdom, my talent, my education, my social status, my influence, my good looks. No, God chooses those who are often referred as counting as nothing at all. And the Corinthians knew this. It wasn't as if, what? I wasn't influential. I wasn't wise. I, wasn't, I didn't have noble birth. No, they knew this. They were aware of it. And Paul was pointing out that intellectual, political, and social position, that which the culture highly regarded, were not qualifications for being called by God. As Paul was asking the Corinthians to look back upon their lives, he was noting that they were foolish, weak, lowly, and despised when God called them. And yet, God called them, and he became for them what they lacked true wisdom, wisdom from God, their righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Verse 30, it is because of him, him, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So how does a foolish, weak, lowly, and despised person respond to God when they are now wise, righteous, holy, and redeemed? Well, they boast. Verse 31, therefore, it is, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. They boast, not in themselves. They boast in the Lord. Look at what God has done. Do you see what God has done? Look at me. Look at me. Look not at what I have done, but look at me and see what God has done. A despised, lowly, foolish person. This destroys the, en- the empty sentiment to have self-esteem and self-confidence, doesn't it? Throw away your self-help books. Turn to God if you have not done so. If he is calling you and you feel like, you know, I am like that. I'm a despised, weak person. Then receive Christ and rejoice. There is much to boast in the Lord about. Salvation is from God alone. And boasting about ourselves before God is just, it's just sheer nonsense. Yet, we tend to make many great boasts, don't we? But rarely is it about the Lord. If we are to ever boast, we must boast in the Lord. These words come from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Redeemed people boast not in their own wisdom or their own strength or their own riches. They boast in the Lord alone who provides salvation by grace alone. Paul was well aware of this. He knew that as he described the Corinthians as despised, wretched, weak, lowly people, that he was one and the same. Paul said he was the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. He saw his own merits as worthless and the lowliest kind of filth in Philippians 3.8. And if it weren't for the priceless treasure that God had entrusted to him, he would have nothing of value. Since that day of conversion on the road to Damascus, he had never thought of himself as something remarkable. He regarded himself as the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15.9, less than all the saints, Ephesians 3.8, formerly a blasphemer, a prosecutor, an insolent man, 1 Timothy 1.13. But what does God often do throughout the scriptures and even today? God delights in calling menial, plain, foolish, weak, despised, lowly people to nullify and shame the wise of this world, the strong of this world. And why does God do that? So no one would boast in themselves, even of their own salvation, as if God had chosen me because of something I have done or who I am. That the glory given by men and women of God would be given to the Heavenly Father who has become their wisdom, their righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Praise and glory be to God, to God alone. So what did Paul do with this in mind? What did he do? Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul resolved to know nothing except one thing, Christ and him crucified. Take, away, take that away from Paul, and he would have nothing really to say, nothing of value. Why did Paul resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified? Well, because anything else would have been a waste of time. He threw away wise and persuasive words of which he could have used so that faith would not rest on his own wisdom. Paul was a brilliant scholar. He could have sparred with intellectuals and philosophers of that day but faith that depends on clever arguments or bright oratory can be undermined by another logical argument or a more talented speaker. Faith trusting in the Holy Spirit just cannot be undermined. Paul shared the simple message of Christ and him crucified and let that simple message move into the hearts of the Corinthians by the working of the Holy Spirit so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul did not go into the city with eloquence and superior wisdom, but he went with humility, which was frightening. He went with fear. He went feeling weak. He went trembling. And what did God do with the power of his spirit? He established his church in one of the most wretched cities in the world. So we boast. We boast and say praise and glory be to God alone. Now please do not misinterpret this passage. Paul is not saying that the message of Christ and him crucified does not have substance. Listen to these words from John Stott in the Contemporary Christian. And I quote, There is no possible justification here either for a gospel without content or for a style without form. What Paul was renouncing was neither doctrinal substance nor rational argument, but only the wisdom and rhetoric of this world. We have no liberty then to invite people to come to Christ by closing, stifling, or suspending their minds. No, since God has made them rational beings, he expects them to use their minds. To be sure, they will never believe apart from the illumination of the Spirit. Without this, all our arguments will be fruitless. What the Holy Spirit does in the new birth is not to make a person a Christian, regardless of the evidence, but on the contrary, and I love this, to clear away the mists from his eyes and enable him to attend to the evidence. So then the gospel is truth from God, which, was, which has been committed to our trust. Our responsibility is to present it as clearly, coherently, and cogently as we can. And all the time as we do this, we will be trusting the Holy Spirit of truth to dispel people's ignorance, overcome their prejudices, and convince them about Christ. End quote. The message of the cross is a simple message, yet it is a deep message. The most important message of all 
It is a message that the world in Corinth and even today, people laugh at. Eyes roll. Late night talk show hosts mock and comedians make fun of. For many, it's become a joke. For many, it's silly. It's foolish. And yet, it is the fool who would think any message ever stated could be greater. God has made the wise, the scholar, the philosopher of the Corinthians into fools. I keep thinking about the king in the court with the fool that dances and prances around before him. You know what I mean by the fool that has the funny hat with the bells on the end and he's trying to juggle and he's got his, his striped outfit on and he's trying to entertain the king? That's the image that comes to mind. God has made the wise man, the scholar, the philosopher of this age into the fool. Blind fools. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made, the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased. He was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So let's take a step back for a moment with what we have just read. In verse 21, it states that God is pleased with this, that this brings God pleasure. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. We have a message that is seen culturally as foolish, absurd. And it's a message being given by weak, lowly, despised people. Back then, it would be stated that it's a foolish message, a foolish message given by a foolish people. Probably more blunt today, it would be more like this, a stupid message spoken by a stupid people. And God is pleased through the foolishness of what was preached by foolish people to save those who believe. It may be foolish to the blind. It may be foolish to the blind, but to those whom God has called Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Praise and glory be to our great God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to ask three questions in closing this morning. Three questions. And in light of our passage this morning, how does this impact us? 
And here are the three questions if you're taking notes. How does this impact the way I see myself? How does this impact the way I see other people? And how does this impact the way I see God? How does this impact the way I see others, or how I see myself, how I see others, and how I see God? Let's begin with the first. How does this impact the way I see myself? How do you see yourself? As you look at your life when you received Christ, what were you like? Or if you, for, if you thought, hey, I, if I was never called, what, what do you think you would be like today? In essence, apart from Christ, we have nothing. If we are looked at by the world as weak, lowly, and despised, or we're looked at by the world as strong, intelligent, and highly educated, we would still have nothing apart from Christ. It is because of him and him alone that we are in Christ Jesus. And he has become for us true, real, honest, pure wisdom from God. And we are now righteous. We are now holy and redeemed. And so if we are to boast, what do we really have to boast about? Are we to pat our own backs? Are we to try to sum up some self-confidence? How often do we boast? I don't know about you, but I boast too much. I do. And yet, we rarely boast in the Lord. I don't boast in the Lord enough. If we are to boast about anything within us or is done through us, we are to boast in the Lord. Praise be to God. For those of you who remember life apart from Christ, a time when you did not follow the Lord, you did not know the Lord, you were not called, um, did you ever think of it as, as that, like having that mist in your face? Like as if you were living in a fog? There have been so many times I have left here on a Wednesday night to drive home, and the fog was so thick, I could just barely see out the windshield. Have you had that happen? Where you just could not see. And as you're driving along really slow, all of a sudden, it's like a wall. It's just the fog lifts, and all of a sudden, you can see everything. It's like that, isn't it? It's as if, apart from Christ, you were living in a fog, and you had no idea. It was as if this is the way things are. This is how life is. And then all of a sudden, the fog lifts. And now you can see, and now you can know. It was like that for me. And as I look at this passage this morning, it really hits home for me. As I read that God chose the foolish things of this world, I say, that was me. God chose the weak things of this world, Garrett, that was me. And he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, that was me. That was me. And I remember I was on a winter retreat as a teen, a junior in high school. I was not seeking the Lord. I was not looking for God. And yet, here's this closing time together, and we're sitting on the floor at this hotel and the youth pastor just said, okay, it's time to pack up our bags to hit the bus and to head home. And I sat there. 
and I couldn't get up. I wasn't seeking the Lord, but I couldn't stand up. It was as if, it was as if the Spirit was pinning me down. It was as if the sin that I was aware of was so heavy, I couldn't stand up. And it wasn't because I remember some eloquent talk or some amazing words that were, that were given, persuasive words, wise words. It was the Spirit convicting me. And a youth leader came up to me, Lori Lewandowski, who ended up becoming like a spiritual mother to me for years to come. She just asked me, are you okay? And all I could say with tears in my eyes were, no, I need God. I need God. So we went and sat at a table in the corner, and she had another student who had just received Christ about three months before, and we prayed, and I received Christ. And it was like the fog lifted. The fog lifted. It was glorious. And my life was instantly changed. What do I have to boast in? A despised, lowly student. But Christ but in God alone. What do I have to share of it's more important than Christ crucified? There I was, February 25th, 1990, and God changed my life. He gave me hope. How does this impact the way you see yourself? What do you have to boast in? How does this impact the way we see others? I remember going to a youth specialties conference uh, back in the early 90s, I had been to many of those over the years, uh, long ago, and there was one particular seminar I went to that was about evangelism and youth, youth and evangelism. And they were sharing their tactic and how they were reaching out to teenagers uh, in their church. And they said, what we were doing was that we, we, want, we put an effort to go after the most popular kids in school, the popular ones. Find out who is the captain of the football team and the quarterback. Find out who's head of the cheerleading squad. Find out who's in the, the cabinet, the class president, student body president. Find out who they are. Find out who is being followed and reach out to them. Go after them. Imagine if they came to know the Lord, how many others would follow? And yet, is there something wrong with that? Is that what Paul was saying here? Who did Paul go to? I mean, have we ever thought that? Have you ever sat and watched television and thought, well, wouldn't it be great if that person came to know the Lord? Wouldn't it be great if this actor or actor or politician or athlete or genius in the academic world, what if they came to know the Lord? Wouldn't they be a great spokesperson, leader for Christ? Do, do individuals like that ever receive Christ? Well, yes, but not many. Why? Because God often, often chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It is the are who are called that will have such a huge challenge to refrain from boasting in themselves. There is no place for self-proclamation in the presence of God. God calls upon the weak and the feeble in order that it may be clear to all that your faith would not rest on your own wisdom, but on God's power. 
In Christ's day, the world was filled with intellectuals and influential people. They were, there were celebrated philosophers, unsurpassed scholars, the most powerful politicians, meticulous rabbis. And yet when Christ came, who did he go to? He went to simple, crude, unknown, uneducated men who mostly smelled like fish. Last Sunday, we had a great message from Pastor Chris as he talked about the angels appearing before the shepherds. Why would they appear before shepherds? Shepherds who were smelly, dirty, outcasts. They were often not allowed into the city because they were known, they were thought of as, as criminals. They were lowly and despised, and yet here is this angelic host praising God, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Why would his favor rest on shepherds? Why would his favor rest on lowly, despised people? Even today, the world is filled with intellectuals and influential leaders, and yet in the media, do we see believers, people that are, have great leadership roles? Well, not many. So how do you view those who are seen as wise and influential in our world? Do they intimidate you? How do you feel when you believe God is motivating you to share the simple yet deep message of Christ and the cross with anyone who's highly regarded? Does it make you overly nervous? Or how about someone who's not really highly regarded and looked down in society? Do you see that differently? Is it easier for you? Are you afraid? Well, let me encourage you. If you are scared to share the gospel, that's okay. When Paul shared with the Corinthians, he was scared. He was afraid. He was timid. He felt weak. And he trembled because he decided, I'm going to share one thing only, Christ and him crucified, which relied wholly on the Holy Spirit. And he was nervous. Have you ever been so nervous that your body shook? <laughs> Have you ever been so nervous that your, it's, it's as if your, your voice shook, your voice was trembling? It's normal to fear, but don't let your fear overcome you and keep you from sharing. Instead, pray and ask God to help you and know that you don't need persuasive words. You don't need to be a wordsmith. Know that it is the Spirit of God that is at work that will change hearts. It is the Spirit and the power of God that will soften the heart and open the eyes and clear the fog. And that might not, not even occur for some time or even ever with the person you're speaking to. But your hope is placed in the Spirit. Do you believe Paul when he said in verse chapter 2, 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He did not use wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. What is this demonstration of the Spirit's power? Well, it's people yielding to God in the absence of eloquence, of superior wisdom and persuasive words. It's the transformation of people People being adopted into the family of God, the changing of one's eternity, 
not because of someone's masterful words, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. When you share the simple, deep message of Christ, may the listener's faith rest not on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Lastly, how does this impact the way we see God? Well, if God calls us, if God chooses us, if he promises to keep us strong to the, to the end, that we would be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is faithful, if our faith is not to rest on man's wisdom but on God's power, if God delights in using foolish, weak, despised, and lowly people to save those who believe through a demonstration of his Holy Spirit, then if we boast, what shall we boast in? What shall we boast in? Again, another quote from John Stott. He says, and I quote, First, we have a weak and foolish message, Christ on the cross. Secondly, it is proclaimed by weak and foolish preachers. Thirdly, it is welcomed by weak and foolish people. Thus, God chose a weak instrument, Paul, to bring a weak message, the cross, to weak people, the Corinthian working class. Why? It was, because, it was so that no one may boast before him, and so that he who does boast will boast in the Lord alone, end quote. Aren't you glad that God chooses lowly, despised people? Aren't you glad that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength? Where is your confidence? Is it self-confidence? Or is it confidence in God alone? The God who uses people who are not eloquent or suave or the most profound or intellectually strong, but who are fearful, shy, weak, lowly, and despised in this world to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. If we would just see as we should, if we would be reminded as we should, it is God who calls the gospel focuses on Christ and the cross, and it is demonstrated by the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. Only the Holy Spirit can convince people of their sin and their need for forgiveness. Only the Spirit can open their eyes to the truth of the importance of Christ crucified, to bend their proud wills to submit to God, to unchain them and set them free to believe and to bring them into a new birth. This is the demonstration which the Holy Spirit gives to words spoken in human weakness from a trembling, willing believer. Have confidence, brothers and sisters in Christ. Not confidence in oneself that would lead to boasting in oneself, but confidence in God alone that would lead to boasting in God alone. Let all praise and glory be to God. Let all praise and glory be to God alone. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is an odd prayer. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be fearful, that you would keep us trembling so that we don't rely upon ourselves, but that we rely solely upon you, not knowing what you will do. Lord, your spirit is powerful. 
effective, amazing. Lord, help us to rely solely on your spirit. Help us to share the simple message of Christ and him crucified. Don't let our fear be so heavy that it keeps us from sharing. But may the fear and trembling motivate us to trust in your spirit. Help us, Lord, to boast. Help us to boast in you alone. In Christ Jesus we pray.